Tama Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Heidi Cullen will join us to discuss the weather of the future. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the extreme temperatures of the past summer may be indicative of changes occurring to the environment from global warming. What will happen to the world's climate if nothing is done to prevent these changes? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Heidi Cullen. Dr. Cullen is a senior research scientist with Climate Central. She is also a visiting lecturer at Princeton University and associate editor of the journal Weather, Climate, and Society. Her latest release, The Weather of the Future, Heat Waves, Extreme Storms, and Other Scenes from a Climate Change Planet, explores this issue for a general audience. Uh, Dr. Cullen, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thanks so much for having me. Well, certainly our pleasure, and I, I think this is a really fascinating book, The Weather of the Future. You talk about uh, this prediction of the, the claim of what the weather will be like if global warming continues. I'm curious if maybe you could talk about how really weather relates to climate. You know, I think ultimately what the book, what it really tries to do is just to help put weather in perspective and give it some context. And I think one of the things that we've learned through studying climate science over the past 100 years, essentially, is that when you add CO2 to the atmosphere, by warming up the planet, you essentially increase the likelihood of extreme events. So things like heat waves, droughts, floods are expected to worsen and intensify. And from the observational record, we can already see that that's beginning to play out. And this more recent period in which we have these very warm temperatures, especially over the last summer, indicative of the fact that global warming is occurring. Oh, my goodness. Well, D.C. and New York just posted their hottest summers on record, which, you know, was for anyone who was living on the East Coast, it was pretty awful. Um, You know, and I'd say that one of the other things I think that's really useful to keep in mind is that, you know, climate, of course, is highly variable. Anything can happen. And so, for example, this summer, the East Coast was really hot, consistent with the large-scale global average, the fact that it has been warming steadily. But, you know, the West Coast of the U.S. was relatively cool probably had to do with the fact that we've got a La Nina in play. And yes, I think it's really important to keep in mind that, of course, there's natural climate variability. You can always expect that we'll still see snowstorms and things of that nature. But there is this steady background of warming that has continued for the past 50 to 100 years. So the the trend really is towards global warming. Yeah, when you and you know, climate is very much looking at the large scale and the big picture, and you know, we can see really clearly that it's risen about 1.4 degrees over the past century. And I think the one interesting question right now is 2010 is now tracking to be the warmest year on record. But you know, when you look back, the 2000s were the warmest decade on record, and if you look back even further, the past three decades were warmer than any previous decade. So yeah, there's just this consistent, steady drumbeat of warming. Hmm. Uh, when one looks at the global record of climate change, how does this really compare with past periods of warming or cooling? Well, I'd say that maybe the easiest way to, to think about it is 
that right now the warming that we've seen and the rate of the warming, I think it's, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, of course, there's been a ton of natural climate variability. We've seen, you know, ice ages, we've seen warmer periods, but the rate with which we've seen this warming is unprecedented. And, you know, right now we're very much outside, what scientists like to say is outside the envelope of warming that's taken place over you know, the past 2,000 years. So this Right now, it's, there's a signal, a very strong signal within the noise, and scientists basically try to attribute the, the cause of that trend. There's, there's numerous ways you can attribute the cause of this steady warming trend, and, and all of these different tests point to the fact that the only thing that can explain this steady upward trend is greenhouse gas emissions, ultimately. Hmm. Is there really a, a science then for extrapolating from what we've known about past trends to what the future trends will be like? Well, and that's that's kind of what I've I've looked at in the book, which was just to sort of help people put weather into context and help us all understand, okay, there's a difference between a weather forecast and a climate forecast, but ultimately climate forecasts are very much built, stand upon the shoulders of weather forecasts and they allow us to look out into the future and at least, you know, maybe to step back a second, when you, when you poll people, one of the things that, that comes up is if you ask people what their first image of global warming is when they think about it, it's melting ice. And it's one of these things where it's tough to feel like melting ice is an urgent problem. And so what I tried to do in the book is just to give people a sense of what the models tell us regional climate change will look like in various hotspots around the world. I basically asked scientists to list what they thought were the most vulnerable places in the world. And then, you know, I, I, I talked about what each of these different places could look like. Hmm. How reliable are forecasts or predictions of future weather patterns? And they're, they're definitely not perfect, but I, I think this is one of these issues where, you know, most scientists will just say, definitely, these are not perfect models. There is uncertainty, but we know we have a, a fair amount of confidence that, you know, depending on how, how much CO2 we continue to emit, it will continue to warm. And within basic uncertainty estimates, it, we, we know enough to know that this is a really serious issue. And so, you know, dif different parts of the country actually have different levels of uncertainty with respect to the models. And, you know, for example, the U.S. Southwest is actually one area where the climate models are in, in very strong agreement and show a really strong drying trend as we move out in time. And think, in a sense, what the book tries to do is just show you that, okay, we have a, a fair sense of, of how climate will play out over time, what that means for weather extremes. But you can also look at things like population growth and, you know, our infrastructure and the fact that our infrastructure is, is quite old in many places. And it's, it's really the intersection of all of these different things that create vulnerabilities. And, you know, whether it's, you know, New York and the fact that the energy grid and the water infrastructure and the subway systems are all quite vulnerable, it's really just acknowledging the fact that, you know what, our infrastructure was very much built with a different climate in mind. And we're, we're rapidly heading towards a place where our infrastructure isn't going to be very well-equipped to deal with it, and we're already seeing signs that we're not well-equipped to deal with tremendous weather extremes right now. Mm. 
acknowledging that these sorts of uh, changes in the climate are going to necessitate very large-scale investments in, tr- in our infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, there's there's three different ways you can kind of break down actually solving the climate change issue. And, you know, there's adaptation, which is one of these issues where you can adapt your infrastructure, you can upgrade your infrastructure. And, you know, for folks who work in emergency management or disaster mitigation or hazard mitigation, they really say that, look, any investment that we make now in, in upgrading our infrastructure, it just, it helps us in the long run because we already know that, that we're vulnerable, you know, whether it's to flood extremes or heat extremes. Then there's mitigation, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. You know, we've been struggling for quite a long time to, to figure out what kind of legislation to put in place. And then, you know, there's also the issue of climate engineering and, and ways to either suck CO2 out of the atmosphere or, you know, bounce sunlight back out to reduce the global average temperature. So, Dr. Collin, this is Elise Kovic. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. So one of the things that I appreciated about the book is addressing the different regions, because I really feel that global warming means something different to different regions. Like, for instance, in Chicago, I think in the summer, we will believe in global warming. In the winter, on the other hand, unfortunately, we won't because it's just so cold for so long. So, I mean, for people who don't have scientific backgrounds, what do you tell people who will say, oh, there's no such thing as global warming? Look at how cold it is. Look at how much snow we're getting. Yeah, well, one thing is to just sort of help people understand kind of how the climate system works. And it, it was so interesting because that that scenario that you just described, mm-hmm. it totally played out this this winter on the East Coast because D.C., Philadelphia, New York, we had massive snowstorms. Yeah. And it was just this perfect opportunity to say, well, you know, where's your global warming now? Yeah. When in fact, you can very nicely walk folks through the argument that, okay, look, in any given year, there's still tremendous natural climate variability. I mean, there's El Nino, there's all of these different phenomenon because you know climate is very much like an orchestra where you have all of these different instruments playing and this past winter we had something called a negative north atlantic oscillation allowed all this cold air to come south from the arctic mm-hmm. but you can then say well look you know here's the thing with global warming is that global warming and this connection to increasing extremes is when you have an overall warmer planet you can release more water vapor into the atmosphere that water vapor then allows you to fuel storms. So it's not to say that we'll see fewer snowstorms, because basically there's only two things you need to have a snowstorm. One is a cold enough temperature, and then you need you actually need fuel or moisture for the storm. And global warming could actually increase the intensity with which we see some of these snowstorms. So there's that element where you can just kind of educate folks and help them understand how the climate system is related in all of these different ways, and that there are ironies in the sense that we expect to see more droughts as well as more floods because of the way the climate system works differently. So I think maybe it's it's an educational opportunity. Absolutely. And then in the summers, as we see the summers get increasingly hotter, I think that is a big moment to just sort of help people fast forward and say, well, you know what, if you thought this summer was hot, just imagine if we moved forward in time. Sure. Well, well, the book is really very fascinating in the sense that you do predict what is going to happen in different parts of the globe, the world from Africa to Australia to California. I'm, I'm curious, uh, what's the climate going to be like here in here in North America? And one thing I'll say is that it's you know I, I work very closely with the, the climate modeling community, and you know I was at a, a talk recently where someone who works on seasonal to interannual climate forecasting and predictions said, I thought she kind of summed it up nicely, and she said, you know, it, it takes one person to make a prediction, but it takes an entire community to make a forecast. And I think having been at the Weather Channel for five years, I was just I was so 
in awe of the power of a forecast. When we watch you know, Hurricane Earl tracking across the Atlantic, to me, I'm just amazed at the fact that we can actually predict the track. We can predict the wind speeds. You know, it's, it's not perfect. We can offer forecasts for these things. We, we show the uncertainty estimates. And it's, it's very similar in many respects with, with these long-range climate projections. And it's interesting because this past summer in the Northeast, incredibly hot, but we actually took a climate model. We did a climate modeling experiment to look at the ex- extreme heat this past summer. And, you know, New York, for example, was about 81.3 degrees in July, which was about five degrees warmer than average. But if you fast forward 40 years, actually, into the future to about 2050, what you see is that this past July is actually a cooler than average or, a, you know, a relatively average July. So, I think one to, to think about is as we move forward in time, these heat extremes that we're experiencing right now, they will become the new normal or, or they will become relatively cool compared to, you know, compared to what we're experiencing right now. So I think there's kind of a thought experiment that we all have to go through to picture what it will look and feel like in the future if we continue to emit greenhouse gases business as usual. But it's sort of a picture that we all have to think about as as it's really, as you mentioned before, going to have very profound implications for how we uh, sort of structure our society. Yeah, and I think that's why the whole notion of just thinking about our infrastructure and you know, the fact that for most cities around the country, the infrastructure investment has, has been pretty poor. And you know, needless to say, we've got a tremendous recession that we're trying to deal with right now. And I know it's difficult to make infrastructure investments during a recession. But in the long run, it's just proven over and over again that it makes so much more sense to do these things up front. And when I talked to scientists for the book, I kind of started with this premise of, you know, 30 years ago, scientists warned about how vulnerable New Orleans was to a hurricane. And it was a forecast. We could say that a hurricane would inevitably hit New Orleans. We couldn't say exactly when it was going to happen. But it was very clear that the city was incredibly vulnerable. And this is sort of where human nature plays such a large role in the sense that it's very hard for us to say we need to do something in advance of the storm. In some sense, the U.S. and perhaps more industrialized countries might be in a better position to adapt these changes. What about those countries in the third world, for example, that will be heavily hit to adapt? Yeah, well, you know, I I think one takeaway from this past summer, you know, with the floods in Pakistan and and the massive heat wave in Russia was a country like Russia with 30% of their wheat yield being decimated, essentially, was kind of, I thought, this reminder that, you know what, even developed countries have intense vulnerability in the sense that next year we could see the same kind of drought that hit Russia. So I think there's always going to be this reminder that, look, we're all incredibly vulnerable. But then, you know, in, in Pakistan, for example, we saw that, you know, just the reverberations of you put 15 million people in, in harm's way. It has large-scale implications because the world is so interconnected. So it does become everyone's problem. And a region like the Sahel, what was so interesting for me was when I actually sat down and talked with scientists who are working on the ground in the Sahel, you'll see that there's actually steps that are being taken in a very impoverished part of the world to help reduce vulnerability and, and sort of increase the sustainability. And, and in that example, there's something called the Sahel Regreening Initiative, where farmers on the ground are essentially trying to protect their trees, regrow trees. And it's been this great initiative that, that's actually you know, alleviated poverty. It's, it's increased crop yields. And I mean, these are small scale efforts, but they're, they're, it's, it's sort of showing that at every level, things 
can be done. And so we shouldn't feel that it's, it's hopeless. So, I mean, there's certainly efforts going on all over the world. I mean, in your book, you have a chapter on the Inuit people. Right, right. And, you know, it's, it was so interesting working on that chapter because the, the scientist that I, I spoke with, Sherry Gearhard, is a Canadian scientist, and she and her husband essentially decided to move to Nunavut and work in Clyde River with the community there. Sherry is, is um, fluent in the native language in Inuit, and, you know, she's been working with local communities to kind of help figure out ways to reduce their vulnerability. And, and for me, it was an introduction to just the whole notion of indigenous forecasting, because the communities up in the far north, they rely so much on their own ability to forecast the weather because it's it's a traditional hunting and fishing community and when they go out on you know with there's with a dog sled or with a ski do you know they're basically at a tremendous risk if the weather changes quickly and and one of the things that that sherry learned in her interviews with people was that they felt like their traditional forecasting methods were beginning to fail them because the climate was changing so quickly around them and so there's there's interesting adaptation strategies that they're trying to use to just deal with the fact that that their surroundings are, are changing much more quickly than they've ever seen before. So and this is clearly a global problem. How well advanced do you think world governments are in terms of addressing the change to the global environment? I think that's the really hard part, you know, and, and for me as a scientist, I feel like my responsibility is just to help people see uh, what climate change looks like and, and help them understand that, you know, this this is truly real and that the science has allowed us to actually fingerprint the cause to humans, to the fact that when we burn fossil fuels, we release additional carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and and to sort of just help people see that. And, you know, from, from the policy standpoint, you know, I, I've watched it for so long, and I see how difficult it is, which is why, on a certain level, I feel like this whole notion of, of just really investing in our infrastructure is hopefully one way we can we can begin to protect ourselves and reduce our overall vulnerability to this. And, you know, so many scientists will just say, look, any changes that we make now will help us now, and they'll also help us down the road. So, you know, I, I'm also curious just to see how, what will it take for folks to, to feel like this is truly, you know, an, an urgent issue. And, you know, we'll see what happens in, in Mexico for the next COP meeting. Right, right. If you could uh, give some recommendations for that meeting, what would they be? For one, infrastructure adaptation is it's just proven to be a win-win, and you know, and especially in in poorer countries where you know the impacts can be so devastating because the infrastructure is is even you know more challenged. That 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 is just you know it's a good way to move forward, and it's interesting when you talk with policy experts, what they'll say is that the you know the challenge with greenhouse gas emission strategies and with with the whole Kyoto Protocol is that fundamentally when the Kyoto Protocol was written. There is essentially this call to protect the economies of developing nations. And so I think we have to to acknowledge the fact that the the steps that we take have to optimize across both economic growth and reduction of emissions. I I think that that's sort of where the policymakers are are focusing these days. But it's not to say that it's going to be easy. No, it certainly is not. Uh, the new book is called The Weather of the Future, Heat Waves, Extreme Storms, and Other Scenes from a uh, climate Change Planet. Uh, Dr. Cullen, I want to thank you very much for your time. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And you were just listening to Heidi Cullen discussing the weather of the future. This is the Grox Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. Stay tuned.
It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic heating up or cooling down. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would, uh, would classify them as heating up or cooling down and uh, maybe a little reason why. Uh, Dr. Cullen, you ready to play the game? I am ready. Okay. <laughs> well, ready or not. Yeah, here it comes. Uh, person number one, heating up or cooling down, it's uh, the actor David Hasselhoff. Oh, my goodness. Okay, and so you should know this about me. I'm a total TV junkie, so of course <laughs> I know that David Hasselhoff is going to be on Dancing with the Stars. So is that I guess, official? Yes, it was announced oh. um, yesterday. He and Bristol Palin, oh, and wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm too embarrassed to tell you that I probably can name all of these people. Audrina Patridge is one of them. <laughs> Rick Fox, the former NBA player. But so I guess for that reason, David Hasselhoff <laughs> would have to be heating up. <laughs> I think the Hoff has always been high. So hopefully he heat up the uh, dance floor there. But, um, uh, person number two, it's uh, the talk show host Jerry Springer. You know, Jerry Springer's got some, I guess, a fairly well-watched show on the Game Show Network as well. But, you know, from what I hear, Jerry Springer is a super smart guy. So say that he's potentially heating up as well. All right. So now, former Vice President Al Gore. Mm, that's a tricky one. Uh, you know, I think that, that just by virtue of, of, of Al's passion for the environment, we have to say that he's cooling down. Ah. All right. Now, here. I think you'll like this one. Uh, Paris Hilton. Oh, dear. Wow. I, I would say that, that due to the fact that Paris is in some hot water, she has to be heating up. I don't know what's going to happen, but, uh, you know, I guess she's just confused as the difference between what cocaine versus what bubble gum looks like at this point. So I have to say that she's heating up. Bubble gum. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't even I know. I thought what it to was say. gum. <laughs> Seriously, I have no idea what to say about it. It wasn't my purse, but I also I thought it was gum. <laughs> oh boy! All right, and finally, our former governor, uh, Rod Blagojevich. Ooh, wow! Now that sounds tricky. Um, I hope he's cooling down. Yeah, I, I let's let's hope for all of us that he is cooling down. <laughs> and hopefully, out of our hair. He's got enough of his own hair. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Cullen, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing our game. Thank you. Sure thing. Thanks, guys. And, and again, your new book is called The Weather of the Future, Heat Waves, Extreme Storms, and Other Scenes from a Climate Change Planet. Thank you very much for your time. Sure thing. Have a great night. Bye. 
So, Charles, we have something very important to talk about oh, today. It's, I think, the most important thing that's uh, ever happened in the history of the Grok Science Show. It's our triumphant appearance at the Bacon. And competed last Saturday in the Bacon Takedown. Um, the Grok Science Show took third place. We're very proud to announce that. And for all of the people who wished us well. Of course, we know first and second place just bought out the judges. So. <laughs> yeah, and we didn't have enough money. I know. What can you do? All Nonprofits. We had, all we had were quiche. <laughs> and the quiche was delicious. Indeed. And of course, one more thing. Here's a double shout out to Mick. So Mick is one of our fans that goes onto our website and will actually comment. And so we encourage everybody to go on the website and comment. Send us emails. Send us show suggestions. We would love to hear from you. Hate mail. That's fine, too. I don't want it. Send that to Charles. <laughs> I, I can deal with it. Visit our website, www.grox.net. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Twitter. See us there. Well, this is Rock Science Show. I've been Charles Lee. And I'm Elise. And we'll be back into more from the world of science technology. If you'd like to see us, you can do so uh, on the web. Our web address is www.grox.net. You can also email us at science at grox.net. And we're on Facebook. Have a great afternoon. <laughs>